You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. If I had to guess where the next leg up in gold would be, and this is simply a ratio of prior history of gold bull trends since the 1970s, is we'll go to eight to $9,000, probably in the next couple of years. This is different. This will be different. It's driven differently. This is not just another gold bull market. This one, I think, will be end, will end in such a way that many major governments, Chinese probably first, will convert their currencies to gold back. I'm Bill Powers. Thanks for tuning in to Mining Stock Education. And joining me today is Michael Oliver of Momentum Structural Analysis. His website is olivermsa.com. And he has developed a proprietary momentum-based method of technical analysis. Uh, He technically anticipated and caught the crash of 1987. And it was then that he decided to develop his structural momentum tools into a full analytic methodology. And Michael is someone that I've listened to over the years for insights, uh, particularly on where the precious metals are headed. So Michael, thanks for coming on the show for the first time. And for those that aren't familiar with your approach, talk a little bit about how it differs from standard technical analysis, please. Okay. Uh Okay. Standard technical analysis is usually price chart based. Okay. And, you know, there have been textbooks about it. Edwards and McGee back in the 1940s wrote this giant manual on how to analyze charts. And that's what most people consider to be technical analysis. Uh, There's some variations like on your screen, your quote screen, you might have MACD or RSI that are free on your screen and they should be free. Okay. Uh, The reason we take price and treat it as a secondary technical factor is that, think about this for a minute, human beings survive on the planet by measuring things. You measure light, you measure temperature, you measure length. Like if you're going to build a house, you have a yardstick. You know, and if if over a six-month period of time, fantasize this, your yardstick grows. You don't notice it, but it grows an inch a month. But it still tells you it's 36 inches long. Well, by the time you complete building that house, you're going to have built a monstrosity of a house, okay? Because your measurement changed during the process and you weren't aware of it. You didn't factor that in. And so all of your measurements are wrong. But your yardstick said it was 36 inches. Well, the same is true with foreign exchange. You've got a fiat currency called the dollar. We measure our stock prices, commodity prices versus the dollar or the euro or the yen, whatever. But those currencies are not stable measurements, They're not stable units of measurement. They're not like a thermometer. They're not like a yardstick. They change. And now they're changing dramatically, more so than in modern history, in terms of the quantity of the money units in circulation. And so you've got a yardstick that is plastic. You know, it's changing. It's deceptive. So how do you get around that? Well, it's hard to get around it totally. I'll admit that. But what we do is when a lot of price chartists will overlay a moving average on their chart, you know, a 200 day average or 50 day, whatever. And they like to see if price loops above or below. We don't care about that so much, but what we do is we take that yard, that uh, moving average, and we'll, we'll use annual moving averages, quarterly, monthly, weekly, daily, all kinds of time scales. And we'll measure price in relation to that particular mean. To some extent, what that mean does, that average, is it takes the money unit and reduces the emphasis of the sheer measurement by the money unit and also factors in the movement of the underlying asset. 
which determines the speed or rate of change in the moving average. So to some extent, we take a step away. What we do is we oscillate price versus the moving average. We do that by an oscillator where the zero line, price is above it or it's below it, and the zero line is your moving average. So we create an oscillator to compare to the price chart. Sometimes price will be in sync with its own momentum. Sometimes it won't be. Usually we find that trend changes, tops or bottoms, will make themselves more evident on a momentum chart before they ever become evident on the price chart. So we like to be able to anticipate trend changes before it becomes bleeding obvious on the price chart and before everybody else joins in, if you know what I mean. It's always better to be early than late. So we use momentum measurement that way by oscillating price versus various means. And in the case of gold, for example, uh, we're, we're flexible, uh, but we also look at the long-term trend. Back in 2011, as gold was making its high in the 1900s, late in 2011, it wobbled off a bit. A couple months off the high, that's all. Uh, and as soon as it opened January of 2012, our annual momentum structures, not the price charts, but annual momentum, where we plot monthly bars in relation to a 36-month average, three-year average, broke a major uptrend line that was very, very obvious on a momentum chart. It was not obvious on a price chart. And from that point forward, we were bears. What did gold do? Well, it flip-flopped around all of 2012, and finally in 2013, it crashed. So we were way ahead of the event. And it was tough to hang in there being bearish when the market wasn't breaking down, but we, we thought it was a top and it was a top. Then in 2015, gold hit a low at 10.54 price. That was a 46% drop, I think, from the high. Okay, but a nice bear market. Most price chart people didn't see the bottom completed until the summer of 2019 when gold came up through this big base that it built for four or five years, where every time it'd rally up into the 1300s, it would fail, go back down, go up to 1300s, fail again. You could just draw a line across that. Well, in, in February of 2016, two months after the low, annual momentum broke out, way before price ever broke out a couple of years later at a much higher price level. So right now we're very bullish on gold. We think the bull market is fresh, it's young. The base it broke out of is very wide on momentum and on price. We don't think that this jiggling around we've had for seven months is a top. We think it is a, just a major confusion zone to confuse the bulls, excite the bears, and trap them both, and ultimately break out for a very strong further leg up. If I had to guess where the next leg up in gold would be, and this is simply a ratio of prior history of gold bull trends since the 1970s, is we'll go to eight to $9,000, probably in the next couple of years. Uh, and frankly, on a ratio basis, that move from the low at 1054 in 2015 to go to eight or 9,000 is an eightfold move. If you go back and examine all the bull markets since the early 1970s, they were all about eightfold moves. So we're really not outlandish when we make that claim. The fact it wouldn't surprise us if it went further because we think we're in a macro world now where what's going on in other markets is so significant and so powerful at the back of gold that uh, the move could be much more dramatic. The move into gold is essentially a fear trade? 
Yeah, well, it's a it's a reality trade. Gold is a yeah, it could be fear driven, but also just the change in other assets like the dollar, for example. Uh, now, gold is a leader. Gold is not a laggard. A lot of people think, well, if these markets do this, then gold will do that. Okay. Well, if you stand back and look at it, the dollar index rallied from the 70s, and we were bullish on it. This is back in 2012, and the 70 price level up to 100 dollar index. We're talking about now. And then it went sideways from 2015, 16, and 17, basically oscillating up and down above the 95 price level. Go five or six points above it, five or six below it. But really, it was a big sideways mishmash from 2016, 17, and so forth. What did gold do during that time? Massive up move. Gold went from a thousand something. And only this summer did the dollar index go back near its recent high, 103 and start to collapse. Gold had already doubled in price almost by the time the dollar started to give it wind at its back. So gold anticipated the dollar, it wasn't the other way around. So to some extent, in answer to your question of fear trade, no, I think gold is anticipating the fear events, the mega events that are occur, what will occur in the debt markets and the stock markets, which will push gold out to a better, uh, alternative place to have your money. In fact, there's a lot of large asset managers, that, you know, well-known, Dalio, for example, who have in recent months uh, said, hey, listen, don't trust the price of your stocks. The fiat money, the dollar is changing so dramatically that you can't trust the price you see on your stock. You need to be in gold and, and some other assets as well. But these guys aren't gold bugs and they're aware of what's underway here and is only just beginning, frankly. Michael, if we're looking at eight to $9,000 gold, I've heard many times over the years that if we get to $5,000 gold, it might may not be a pleasurable society to live in because your neighbor may be trying to take your food from you. What kind of world do you imagine with $9,000 gold and what's happening in the major markets as gold goes to that height? The, uh, we think ultimately, right now, we don't think the bond market drop in price, rise in yields will sustain. We think there's going to be a sharp reach back rally in the bonds, meaning a drop in yields. And that probably will be coordinated with some sharp wobble in the stock market, especially looking at the NASDAQ 100, the leadership symbols that crowd out the market right now, you know, Amazon, Apple, Microsoft. Uh, they're so heavily weighted in the S&P and the NASDAQ that effectively they're the market now. OK, we think that market will wobble and therefore money will rush back into two alternatives. That would be gold and T-bonds, much like early in 2020. T-bonds were much demand, T-notes and gold. Uh, but after that rally, we think that the T-bond market, the debt market, government debt market will, in fact, turn back down in price and yields will have a sustainable rise. And so that will be very dangerous for what? For the stock market. OK, it'll make it'll put out an alternative there where people park their money and actually get some yield. So the stock market's been going up for a dozen years. It's kind of risky looking situation. A lot of asset managers with some sobriety about them realize that. And that's why they're looking over thing, at things like gold. Uh, as far as the social, yes, there will be social ramifications, economic and so forth. And when the, when the virus goes by the way, which it will, of course, or diminish at least, people will realize, hey, you know, uh, that wasn't the only negative out there. Rising debt has been a problem for a decade plus because of the Federal Reserve's policies. They've encouraged non-savings by taking away interest rates. So not only individuals, but corporations have been 
going the other route, namely toward debt and away from savings. So that's why so many people are hurt during the, the uh, coronavirus crisis is that they didn't have any savings. They were taught not to. In fact, Bernanke wrote a paper on this before he became governor, the head of the Fed, uh, defending the argument that we should encourage debt and people spending rather than savings because it helps the stock market and the stock market psychologically helps the economy. At least that was his reasoning. So it's explicit. It was, it's not just a, an implied policy. He stated it in writing. So, and they, they've pursued that and it had a policy effect, namely uh, debt has risen, not only government debt, but private debt. So people are less capable of handling the problem. So when the virus goes away and things don't get better, that's when the shock effect will hit. That, my goodness, I thought it was all going to get better. And if it doesn't, we see the stock market start to drop again. But not, but, but not a panic sell like last March? No, I don't, I don't think we're going to have another crash. And it's, there's a couple of reasons for that. I think we could have a major bear market, but I don't think we're going to have a crash. One, in history, there are no back-to-back crashes year to year, one year to the next year. They're usually five or 10 more, more years apart. But forget that archival piece of data. When we study the markets, we look at long-term momentum structures, meaning not just the trend structure on price, which if you look at a price chart of NASDAQ, it's just vertical. You can hardly draw a trend line. you know. But when you look at momentum, annual momentum, quarterly momentum of the NASDAQ or the S&P, you see structures that can be broken like floors or multi-point uptrend lines that are very clear. But the spacing between those trigger levels is pretty wide. Usually in a crash event, what happens is all of the trigger structures that you could break, let's say all the bridges on the River Kwai that you could blow up, okay, to cause it to collapse, are tightly, not far apart. So that when you break one, suddenly two days later, you break another, you break another, and they go quickly. Back in February of last year, we called the crash. We defined it, predefined it as a crash event because all of the trigger structures that we were looking at were so close together that literally within about a week from mid-February to late February, all of them were blown. And so it was like all the bridges went at once. And so the market crashed. That is not the situation now. We have structures to break on momentum that if you saw the momentum charts, you'd say, oh, gosh, you know, that's if you break that, you're going down. OK, but there's a lot of spacing between them. So once you hit the first one and then drop some, the second one might be another 30 percent below. So you'll probably fight it. You get down there and try to use it as support again. So we don't see a crash event. We see a bear market potential. And that's the worst kind of bear market to have. It's not the kind that takes you out overnight, but takes you out over a couple of years. Tier 1 Silver is a Canadian precious metals company focused on the exploration and discovery of world-class silver and gold deposits in Peru. The company's management team has a record of monetizing exploration successes and a strong ability to raise capital. Tier 1 has assembled a portfolio of assets in Peru including Amelia Coastal Batholith, the Wheel Icoyo project, and the flagship silver gold project Curibaya, which is rapidly advancing towards its first drill program. Tier 1's listing is pending on the TSX Venture Exchange under the ticker TSLV. To learn more and to stay updated, go to tier1silver.com. That's tier1silver.com. So would you be hesitant to call this a stock market bubble then? Well, it's a bubble in the only in the very narrow leadership stocks. That is definitely a bubble. And so I could see something bordering on what you might call a crash type first drop coming out of the Microsoft's, Apple's, and Amazon's of the world in the front end of NASDAQ 100. But it's not broad enough. 
I don't see it in the back end of the S&P. I don't see it in a lot of sector indices. So I think what you're likely to have is a downturn in your leadership. Uh, again, that's four or five symbols. You know, they're so heavily weighted that they constitute 30% of the S&P, but they constitute 50% of the NASDAQ 100, just a handful of symbols. That if you lose your leadership, they could go pretty quickly because they've had a bubble. And when you look at a chart like an Apple or a Microsoft or an Amazon or a NASDAQ 100, it's vertical. It's been vertical since last summer. So it's had its normal phase of a blow off, which usually don't last a couple of years. They last a couple quarters. Uh, if that tops, that will drag the market down, but the market will come down at a much slower pace than will the front end of the market. Uh, just like the market didn't replicate what the front end did on the upside. You look at a Dow chart, it didn't blow off like NASDAQ 100. So I expect the reverse to happen, in which case the gold mining longs who are always petrified of a stock market decline. Yeah, you may get a stock market decline, but it's not going to be a crash event. In fact, we ran a comparison back. And if you remember, not just what happened in March of last year, which was a crash, go back to late 2012, between October and December of 2012, the broad stock market had a big drop, over 20%. But it was segmented over a three-month period of time with an intervening plateau or a rally effort so that the 20% drop didn't occur like that. It took seven weeks, not three. And you had a whole month in there in November where the market tried to stabilize and it collapsed later into December. But for most stock investors, that was a big drop over 20. It was 20.4% for the S&P. But if you look at GDX during that same time, it went up. In fact, it was almost opposite the S&P because it was not a crash margin call situation. Therefore, it was not forcing uh, those who own gold mining stocks to sell their stocks as well. You follow me? Yep. So there was not, I think the issue is not whether the stock market goes up or down, whether it crashes. And I do not see a crash. So I gold will go up during this bear market. It's not a crash, but it's a bear market. If you had a bear market in stocks now, think about what the Fed would do. Liquidity. <laughs> what more they would do than right. they've already done. I mean, that would add a whole new element to them, whole new motivation to go even crazier. So now what's that going to benefit? Okay. <laughs> There's one primary answer to that, gold and primarily silver, because silver is now the leader, by the way. Uh, by our metrics, silver, which vastly underperformed gold from 2011 to about 2016 and 17. In the summer of 2019, no, excuse me, summer of 2020, silver came back up into the high teens again, where it had been a couple times before. No big deal. In fact, it had been over 20 a couple times since 2013 and failed each time. But in the summer and July of last year, silver inched its way back up and traded a number we specified, $19.48. What that caused to happen was on the price charts of silver, that didn't exceed the prior high, nor the prior high to that. They were gradually declining. But it blew out a flat structure on our annual momentum that was so clear, it was like a ceiling. Is it 19.4 over the 36-month average? 19.4% over the 36-month average spread over a couple of years. So when you came up to 1948 in price, that caused silver to trade 20% over its 36-month average, which blew out that massive ceiling on annual momentum. Silver gained 50% in three weeks after that trade. And so it made sense for us. At the same time that happened, by the way, 
silver spread versus gold, measuring relative performance, also broke out over a multi-year base. And so silver is now, by our metrics, momentum-based long-term metrics, is not only bull, but it's the leadership bull. It will beat gold handily in the next couple of years. And uh, frankly, if, if gold went to 8,000, you know, I would speculate silver would at least be $200 an ounce. And that's a tenfold move from here. And within- we even, even higher, even higher. Uh, it could go berserk, silver could. Uh, everybody's looking at the two highs, you know, the $50 area in 2011, and also back with Bunker Hunt in 1980. Do you think those prices are irrelevant? I had a past guest say that, especially the 1980 price is irrelevant because that was an artificial spike high. Well, it might've been artificial, but it's, it'll be relevant to price chart watchers. But if you buy, we don't look at those kind of things. We look at other kind of breakouts on momentum, not just some silly price high. And I think those are just sucker highs that just need to come out. And yeah, they were, Different things drove the market each time. One time it was uh, Hunt had the Europeans over the barrel. Europeans were getting killed, being short silver, and he was he was winning. Of course, when silver topped, he ki- he got killed because <laughs> silver went back down in the teens very rapidly. Do you expect a spike high? And then what happens? Are we looking at a reset or spike low? I'm after? looking for a reset of the world, frankly. I think this is a different bull market. This is a different market situation and an economic and political situation. Aren't we supposed to never say this time is different as investors? This is different. This will be different. It's driven differently. This is not just another gold bull market. This one, I think, will be end, will end in such a way that many major governments, Chinese probably first, will convert their currencies to gold back. And so gold will be readily available just owning the fiat currency because it'll be backed. And I suspect the Chinese may start the process. Who knows, maybe even Russia, uh, Europeans may. We'll probably be the last to do it. But I think we're going to ultimately end up with gold-backed currencies when there's an intellectual rethink of what's happened over the last 40, 50 years, especially since Nixon took, took us off the gold standard on an international basis. Uh, we're going to realize enough intellectuals out there will and influence politics. And the people in the street will realize this didn't work. Totally destabilized my life, my company's life, government debt. Let's get rid of, let's go back to some form of stability. And I think we'll go back to gold standard. So, so this is a buy and hold until the reset gold bull yeah. market. Yeah, I, I don't know where the end, end price will be of those two markets. I mean, I can project that gold will have another routine eightfold move, but that's just a routine replication of the 1978 through 1980 move or the 1970 through 1975 move, et cetera, et cetera, or the, or the, you know, from the move that took us to 1911. It was also uh, 1920, excuse me, and back in 2011. It's another eightfold move. Uh, so that's just coincidence, but that's routine. And I think we're not in a routine bull market in gold. And I don't think we're in a routine stock market situation, nor in routine government debt market situation. Nothing is routine here. And if we invest in the gold and silver miners, as myself and my listeners do, how would we play this expectation that you're laying out here? Well, we explained in a report this weekend to our subscribers that if you're a gold, silver mining investor, you will outperform gold over the next few years, but you will have your teeth rattled constantly. And it's been historically true. 
And we showed back to 2011, for example, the collapse in the gold mining XAU index or the GDX was far greater, double the size, the percent drop of gold. Then the recovery, if you go back to the low in GDX, for example, which was $12.40 back when gold was at 1050 price. Well, the recent high GDX was 46 bucks. You go 12 bucks to 40. It vastly outperformed gold. Gold almost doubled. GDX went up 280%. Then in the pullback we've recently had, XAU has pulled back more than gold, and GDX has pulled back more than XAU and gold on the downside over the last seven months. You have to realize that when you're in these markets, they're not in a different world than gold. They're just dogs on gold's leash and little puppy dogs. And they yap and yap and they go way up in front of gold on the upside and they go way behind gold on the downside. And you need to realize if you're invested in them that you better accommodate your portfolio to that reality, that they're far more volatile than gold and they will they're delusional to some extent from time to time. They go way too deep on the sell-offs and they go way too high on the upside. And you need to shape your portfolio to reflect that so you don't get scared out every time they pull back. Otherwise, you'll miss, you'll miss the move. Yep. Michael, before you go, any thoughts on Bitcoin, especially the parabolic rise we've been seeing? Uh, MSA has had a perfect record in calling Bitcoin on a major trend basis. When it came out as a futures contract in December 17. It struck me because I was in the gold market back in 75 when it was legalized in 1975. I was hired by E.F. Hutton in April of that year, right after gold had become legalized. Gold peaked when it got legalized and became a futures contract. It was the top and it dropped it. I thought, I wonder if Bitcoin is. And I did a technical analysis of it. And sure enough, it looked ready to top. So we predicted and th at that time, you know, Bitcoin was 20 grand or something. We said it would go to five grand. We were wrong. It went to 3,600. Okay, it took it a couple of years. And then once it turned back up through 5,000, we went bullish again. Frankly, we're bullish technically speaking right now. But my main fear about Bitcoin, and this is something most people in that market don't think about, is that if you begin to compete with fiat currencies as a medium of exchange, and you can be controlled because you're accessible on the internet, you know, they can find you, okay? Uh, they've already said this. Uh, Lagarde, the IMF, and our new Treasury Secretary, ex-Fed Governor, Governess, have both said they think Bitcoin is a uh, criminal process almost. Uh, it's a way to launder money. And so it's a threat so to their power. Yeah, they're going to come down on Bitcoin at some point. The bigger it gets in terms of quantity, it's now past a trillion, right? Okay, once it becomes <clears throat> more and more functional in terms of its use, acceptance, by major companies like PayPal now, or uh, Apple has mentioned it. I don't know if they've made a step, but a lot of companies are recognizing the viability of it and they're sort of opening the door a bit. If that becomes a trend, the central banks are going to have to take an action because the existence of a currency that doesn't ultimately expand like their currencies can cut into the potency of their monetary policies. And therefore, they're going to have to take some action to either regulate or ban, and I suspect it'll be heavy regulation. And once that word gets out to the Bitcoin buyers that the government's coming, they're going to have to think twice about the viability of what they're in and take a look over at gold. Well, governments like to control gold too, though, don't they? Uh, no, Roosevelt did it and got away with it. Uh, think about it now. No way. 
government's going to do it. First off, most governments of the world won't do it. Chinese certainly wouldn't. And uh, the U.S. is not going to because it's not viable. They would have a rebellion on their hand if they tried to seize everybody's gold coins and so forth. So that's not viable for them. So gold is now, in effect, immune from that potential government action. And I think the Bitcoin folks are going to face reality when they start hearing a bit more from Yellen and uh, so forth about regulations on this, because I'm sure Biden will go with whatever she says. Your website is OliverMSA.com. Who would best be served by your services? People who want to be in the gold and the silver mining area only, though they should realize they should look at all asset categories because they impact one another. But we have two reports. One is an all asset category subscription. You get about five or six reports a week on T-bonds, stock market, foreign exchange, commodities in general. We had a coffee report this weekend. Coffee's going to explode. Okay. <laughs> I saw that. <laughs> Wake up. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and we focus on gold. But then we also have, a, that's $1,800 a year or four seventy-five a quarter. And then we have a gold silver report that includes miners. It focuses narrowly on that sector. Comes out once a week. Sometimes there's a midweek report as well, but it's less frequent. It's two ninety nine a year. So if you want to just focus on the gold and silver miners and gold and silver, you can go for the lesser report. But we do strongly suggest that any investor in those markets really also needs to be aware. Look out your side mirrors, what T-bonds are doing, what the stock market's doing, because those will impact greatly your gold or silver positions. Excellent. Well, Michael, thanks for coming on the show today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10 for 1 returns as there is in small cap and micro cap mining stocks. Concomitant with that, if you don't do the work, or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too. I just started to study up on mining stocks and I just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really, you could do really, really well or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly. The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident and just do your work as best you can. Do your very best, but don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited, and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents, but it requires commitment.
This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on MiningStockEducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.